In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, we are still celebrating the Feast of Easter. It's what we call the Octave of Easter, because one day is not great enough to contain so wonderful a feast. And in memory of the fact that time is measured in particles of seven after the seven days of creation, uh, we come to the realization that, of course, this is the eighth day. What then is the eighth day if it's beyond the normal measurement of time? Well, of course, we have entered into the period of eternity now. This great feast never ends. It will be with us forever. We are counting eternity itself. And through the wonderful action of the sacred liturgy, we're brought back to the upper room, uh, to two appearances, in fact, which our blessed Lord carried out, one on the day of Easter itself, and then one exactly eight days later. And the first of those is a repeat of what we were reading last week, about our blessed Lord appearing in the upper room to the twelve uh, apostles. Except, of course, as we know, there were not twelve. One had already lost himself, uh, through his treachery, and there is another one who is not present on that occasion, but we'll come to him in a moment. On this occasion, St. John's Gospel records that our Lord has one extra thing to say on the Feast of the Resurrection, and that is that he breathes upon the apostles, receive the Holy Spirit, he says to them, those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven, those whose sins you retain, they are retained. This wonderful gift of the resurrection is, of course, at the heart of the whole mystery of the cross, the remission of sins. And be in no doubt about it whatsoever, it is a divine power. It is a divine power that the Lord is transmitting to men for the first time. During the course of the Gospels, our Lord on occasion had declared to certain people that their sins were forgiven. On each occasion, he's met with disbelief and incredulity and rage on the part of faithful Jews who accuse him of blasphemy because, of course, the ability to forgive sins is something which belongs to God alone. That is true. And so it is that on this occasion, in a great fruit of the resurrection, the Lord is prepared to impart this divine power to his followers on earth. But it is not a power to be imparted lightly or indiscriminately. Not at all. He says, those whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Those whose sins you retain, they are retained. For a judgment is required. And the great privilege which has come from heaven must be carried out responsibly and thoughtfully, lest it be blasphemously or sacrilegiously administered. But as I say, on this great occasion, not everyone is present. The one who is absent, of course, is Thomas. And the account that we have here brings us to the real message of today's feast, Quasimodo Sunday or Sunday in Albis. What we have is the great example given of faith and of disbelief, which St. Thomas provides us the occasion for. St. Thomas was not there on the first Sunday. We don't know why. But he received the account, of course, afterwards from the other apostles. And the crucial element is that he did not believe it. Now, 
At first thought, it might seem a reasonable thing to express doubt about this. It's an extraordinary thing to be told. He hasn't seen with his own eyes what they saw. Even they were doubtful beforehand. And doesn't it seem unreasonable, even absurd, completely counter to reason? How is such a thing possible? No man has ever risen from the dead before like this. St. Thomas withholds his consent. He withholds his belief. As I say, at first sight it might seem a reasonable thing to do. We Catholics are supposed to use our reason, aren't we? Indeed, God has given us two tools to find our way in this world, reason and the senses, and we're supposed to use them both. Our reason is never contrary to faith, and so the proper application of reason surely is something that we should encourage. And yet, our Lord is critical of Thomas, and there is no doubt that he has sinned. So where does the fault lie? Well, the problem is, of course, that what he was told was reasonable, and that he had, in fact, already had more than sufficient reason to believe. He had walked with the Lord for three years, and had ample opportunity to learn from him all the prophecies and all the truths that he might expect from him. He knew who he was dealing with. He had heard him many times describe what will happen to the Son of Man, how he must suffer and die and rise again after three days. On the eve of the Passion, he'd heard the same prophecy repeated by our Lord. So the events of Holy Week have not come out of the blue, either for Thomas or for anyone else. And not just that, but for all of those three years, he had seen the most remarkable series of miracles performed by this person. Miracles that no one else could do, the feeding of the 5,000, to the walking on water, to the healings, to the nature miracles, to even raising from the dead. All of this he had seen. Was it so much of a stretch of the imagination to think that what the Lord had been able to do for others, he could do for himself? Excluding the supernatural, the miraculous in this way, is not therefore a reasonable response from Thomas. And yet again, there's more. Because on that Easter Sunday morning, credible witnesses were testimony to what had happened. And he received the testimony from their mouths. These were not strangers. He knew who these people were. He knew Mary Magdalene and the pious women. He knew the twelve apostles. He knew their characters. Here is the great fault of Thomas in his pride and in his sense of superiority, he thinks he knows better than all of them put together. They are credulous, superstitious, hysterical people, perhaps. He, on the other hand, is the man of reason. His rational belief is far superior <laughs> to theirs, and he will not be talked out of it. How difficult it is even for us, to free ourselves of this very attitude. There is a, a sense of infidelity which really creeps in here and marries itself to that sense of pride and superiority which Thomas has displayed on that day. 
An application of reason, yes, but at the same time a certain embarrassment about the supernatural and a disinclination to believe it. It's been with us all down the centuries and during times of faithlessness it returns. It is with us today. How often have we seen great institutions of Catholic learning, great universities, raised for the spread of knowledge, which have lost their mission, we see their wonderful towers built up and a cross placed upon them as if to say to the world, we will be relentless in our pursuit of knowledge. We will build the greatest institutions of learning, but we will build them for God and to spread the cross through the world. And yet now they are ashamed of the cross and conceal it. Now they wish it could all be explained away. There's an embarrassment about the supernatural about proclaiming fearlessly those truths of the faith which the very institutions were raised to propagate. Great religious orders which once prized themselves on their learning now fall silent and are embarrassed, just like the universities, to proclaim eternal truths. They who once made a great impact on the world now make no impact on it at all. Because there is this relentless desire to repeat to the world the world's own thoughts. To grovel before the world and seek its approval. To be embarrassed by the supernatural. Yet the supernatural is part of reality. The things of the spirit, the things of the faith, and the things of science all proceed from the same mind of God. There will never be a conflict, an opposition between them. The true pursuit of learning proceeds in concert with the pursuit of virtue. One thinks of St. Thomas Aquinas. There was an occasion when he was asked to write a dissertation on the Blessed Eucharist. And he laboured over it very, very energetically. And he agonised over it. Have I risen properly? Is it correct? And in an agony of worry and doubt, he went into the chapel and he placed his manuscript upon the altar. And he prayed to the Lord to enlighten. And our Lord appeared to him in a vision and said to him, Thomas, thou hast risen well of Thomas, of course, would have been too humble to pass on that vision, but it was one of those rare occasions when the Lord made sure the vision was seen by others too. You see, in his humility, Thomas, of course, was a saint. He had the gifts of intellect, probably the greatest mind the church ever produced. But no less great than that was the greatness of his soul and his reliance on the supernatural order too. This, of course, is something which is a rebuke to Thomas the Apostle. Our Lord appeared those eight days after the Feast of the Resurrection and said to him, put your hands here, put your hand into my side, touch the wounds that the nails made. And he repeated the words that Thomas himself had said in disbelief. 
And at the very moment that Thomas put his hand into the Lord's side, what shame he must have felt. But what he had doubted was true. And what others had accepted, he should have accepted. And he had made the Lord submit to this which was not necessary. There the story could have ended. But of course Thomas is a saint, a very great saint. For there is a great moment of conversion and humility on his part. And so he replies, my Lord and my God. A generous, an extravagant, a precise, a beautiful expression of the relationship of all disciples to the Lord. The Lord's words to him are also a consolation, but less to him than to us. You believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And who's he referring to there? Well, all of us. All of us today and all of those who were not there that day in the upper room, but have followed him down the centuries, believing on the basis of the testimony that was given, of the solid reasons that were produced for belief. The Catholic religion is a great system which amply satisfies every intellectual inquiry, but it is not enough in itself to get us to heaven. Something more is required. That supernatural belief proceeds from the heart, from the soul. It requires an openness to God. It requires devotion and humility. Every Catholic must, of course, study to the best of his ability so that he learns the truths of the faith. But in addition to that, we all know from other proofs that our faith is true. We know from the glory of the sacraments that the Lord has, stay, has, has kept among us here. We know from the miracles that he performed, not just in his own life, but which he has poured out upon the world ever since, and even to our own times. We know in the answer to every prayer that we ever receive. We know when we come into our churches and we feel the tangible presence of the Lord in the tabernacle, an unmistakable and constant consolation. We know him in the spiritual presence in our lives. It is what has brought all of us here and keeps us here. And this is no less real than every atom that the universe contains. Thomas, we are told, after the events of the gospel, carried the gospel message further than any other apostle. As if making up for the doubt that he had before, but also perhaps energized in his love and devotion to do more for the Lord. The Lord has promised us also that he will be with us to the consummation of the world. He will never depart from us. He will never abandon us. The presence that was there in the upper room on that day, that Easter Sunday, and on the Sunday that followed it, will be there every Sunday for the rest of time. The eternity of the Gospel of Easter Sunday will never leave us. And the presence continues to energize and to encourage us down the centuries. Let us never be afraid. 
let us never doubt the things which Holy Church has proposed, having preserved for our time. Let us use our reason, but let us open our minds, and above all, open our souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.